the evidence of the eyewitness testimony within the Gospels is overwhelming. There is no doubt that the modern church in America has failed its people by not teaching them the earliest stages of church history. Thank you for tuning into Facts, a podcast that primarily focuses on the church fathers, the apocryphal works, the canon of scripture, the text of scripture, and the scripture itself. You can find more information about us on explorechristianity.net. Thank you again for tuning in. Yes, thanks again for tuning in. I am your host, Stephen Boyce. Today I'm doing a standalone episode, but just as a way of announcement coming up real soon, just in a few days, Tyler West, my co-host, and I will be doing a discussion on the Theotokos. Is it proper to refer to Mary as the mother of God? Uh, and this became a huge debate and a dispute that went on at the Council of Ephesus. And we're going to unpack that council and the discussion that went on there with Cyril of Alexandria and others that were there and some of the disputes, the fights, the arguments, and what we should hold to today based on that council. So that'll be coming up just in a few days. But today I want to focus on the subject of heresy and heretics. And what makes a person a heretic? Now, my whole life, I've heard this term, and maybe many of you have as well. You've heard the term heretic. That person is a heretic. Or stay away from the heretics over there. Or that's straight heresy. You're speaking heresy. These are the types of terms that we've become accustomed to, but not understanding the full meaning and history behind such terms. Today, what I want to do is focus on a couple of passages of Scripture, particularly 2 Peter chapter number 2, where the term is used. And then I want to focus on Titus chapter number 3, where a similar form of the word is used. And then I want to focus on how Luke uses the term in the book of Acts when referring to different groups of the Jews, as well as the accusations of Christians that were Jews coming to Jesus and believing in him as their Messiah. These are the things that I want to look at to define properly what it means to be a heretic and what heresy is to be understood as, because I think it's a broader term than we use it. Some people use the term very loosely in our society of the English language, and I want to be careful as we do that and as we investigate this a little bit more. Now, in 2 Peter chapter number 2, verse 1, it says, False prophets also were among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. There's the term. Even denying the master that bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Now, here, Peter had already established in chapter number one that the word had been given to them in a very, uh, really divine and certain way, a way of confidence beyond just the recollection of a person, that the Holy Spirit of God had moved and carried people along to give the prophecy, and that the prophecy was not of private interpretation, but rather the interpretation was made known and brought to light 
not hidden in darkness, which is the opposite of Gnosticism that was forming even in the time that this writing is being put together, that there was secret knowledge and that only secret investigation and secret revelation can be given to individuals who seek deeply within their own heart and soul. That's not the way the New Testament portrays for us divine knowledge. Divine knowledge comes from the divine word of God, where the Holy Spirit of God moved men to write the very words of God. And then the same spirit that moved these men to write the divine words is the same spirit who unveils the understanding of that word to the proper portals and people. Now, in the passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, we find that Peter teaches us that they were a part of the eyewitnesses who beheld the glory, referring back to the Mount of Transfiguration, and that the prophecy of God was given in a more certain way than even the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. Now, oddly enough, Peter finds himself in the group that was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he reveals the same glory revealed to him to us. And the way that that was revealed was through divine scripture, where the Holy Spirit of God brought back to remembrance and brought to mind what they heard and saw in a more definitive way than human possibilities. So Peter has established we have this word. We have this manifestation. We don't just have the words, folks. We have the proper interpretation. And that interpretation is given to us in the apostles and their divine revelation by Christ and his spirit. And we have been passed down those texts and interpretations. Now, I want to focus on this element before we touch the heretic, because we can't understand the heretic until we understand what Peter is saying in chapter one. The divine mystery of God's mind has been revealed through the words and eyewitness testimony of the prophets and the apostles. Once the divine mystery and knowledge of God has been revealed through those, its understanding has been passed down through also their teachings. Peter made it clear. There is no hidden knowledge in our message. So we have the text. We have the interpretation of the text. This is instrumental. But just as when the prophets gave their message and their interpretation, false prophets arose in the ancient past and opposed the trueness of the prophecy of God to his people. And so too will false teachers wrongly interpret the apostles' message who bring in damnable heresies. There's the word. Now I want to talk about the word heresy here. So the heretic not only distorts the words, but distorts its meaning. I think this is where people go wrong. 
And they actually jump the gun when they talk about a heretic and the subject of heresy. Now, Peter will later say this about how there are really errors that come into the church by distorting the teachings of Paul, because he says later in chapter three that Paul had written to them in letter things difficult to understand. And that people actually weighed in on the difficulty of Paul's message and actually perverted the teachings of Paul. Note this. And I, and I want you to think broadly about this. He said, in the letters of Paul, there were things hard to understand that unlearned and unstable people twist as they do the other scriptures to their own, here's the word, destruction. Same word used in chapter two that we just read. So the people that have Paul's letter, they're ignorant is what Peter's saying. They're not trained by Paul's teachings. And because they don't have the trueness, the meaningfulness, the closeness to Paul's interpretations of the letters, they have wrongly not transcribed, but wrongly interpreted the meaning of the text. And in doing so, it actually destroyed the actual intent of Paul. As a result, it put them in a category. It moved them to the category of destructible teachers, people who bring damnation on their own conscience and audiences. And they didn't just do it to Paul. They did it to the other scriptures, being the Old Testament texts. So who are these people in chapter three? Who are these people in chapter two? Now, the word here for heresy is a English word. The English word is a transliteration from the Greek word heresy. So heresy is a created English word from the direct Greek word. Now, what we should note about it is the term actually means a choice of party or a set if you would. It's a sect. It was used by later Greeks and the writers and their philosophical teachings and, and even different forms of the sect, like some were a part of the Stoics or the Epicureans. There was terminology that was being used by this to refer to sectarianism. Heresy is sectarianism. It is a different split. It is a different group, a choice of belief system over against another. Greek writers were using this, which is interesting that the Luke physician would use such terms. He talks about different sects, even in the book of Acts, like in Acts chapter number five, verse 17, it says the high priest rose up and all they that were with him, which in the sect of the Sadducees and were filled with wrath or indignation. So Luke is telling us that at the time there were different persuasions about certain teachings. There were different groups. And in this case, the Sadducees were a sect of the Jewish belief systems in the group of the high priests and all of the Jewish leaders. And they had their own interpretation. They broke into different sects. Later on in Acts chapter number 26, he used the same idea, which know me from the beginning, if they would testify and after the most 
straight act of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Now, the straight act or sect, if you would, he was a part of the sectarian group of Pharisees. So you have Sadducee, you have Pharisee. Paul talking about how he used to belong to the sect of the Pharisees. So in the loose sense or in the basic sense, it is a split. It is a difference of an opinion of interpretation about certain things. One of the biggest ones between the Sadducees and Pharisees was that of the resurrection and the resurrection of the body. What did that look like? So there were two train of thoughts producing two different interpretations of the Old Testament prophets. There's different sects of that. That is how it is used in a basic elementary sense. Now, what Peter does is he adds an additional term to show the gravity of how he wants to use the word sect. He puts the word damnable in front of it. A destructive heresy, a heresy of destruction. To give it a more meaningful, powerful, and dynamic equation. So when he chooses to use the term heretic or heresy, he wants you to know that this heresy is not just a difference of an opinion. It brings somebody to a damnable, destructible condition if followed. It's not just a, well, let's agree to disagree situation, which is how it was typically used in philosophy, whether you're talking about the Stoics or the Epicureans, or whether you're talking about in the Jewish context, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. This has a little bit more weight. He's using it with more weight, same word, but heavier weight by putting destructive or damnable in front of the word heresy. So this is a damnable sectarian view. So what is it that they're teaching here? What is it that makes it so damnable? So what they've done is they've taken the apostles' teachings and they have distorted it in a way that brings personal gain. Just like false prophets rose up and said, thus says the Lord, when they really weren't speaking on behalf of the Lord. No, look no further than the book of Jeremiah, where King Zedekiah was receiving information from the prophets of his time who were saying, oh, no, 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 God said for you to do this. And then Jeremiah, the prophets on the other end saying, actually, that's not what God said. God said, you should do this, Zedekiah. And Jeremiah's prophecies proved true. But there were false prophets who impersonated the voice of God in the past. So too will false teachers, not writers, not false apostles. This is important to interpret. He said there's false teachers. These are people who are wrongly interpreting and teaching the visions and the teachings and the revelation and the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. Now, they're going to do it secretly, bringing in sectarian thought, not just any kind of thought, but damnable sectarian thought, denying the Lord or the master. The word here is a different term than kurios. Typically, you find the word kurios in Greek here, not in this situation. It's a despotis here. It is a term of a master over a slave, if you would. 
denying the master that bought them, bringing upon themselves quick, rapid destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, their lust, their passion. And because of them, the way of truth will be actually blasphemed and their greed will exploit you with false words, wrong interpretations and explanations. Their condemnation was long ago and it is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So what, what is happening here is he's defining to us a heretic. So there's two ways we need to look at the her the heretic. One, the way Luke was using it with Paul, just simply in the basic form, a sectarian. Somebody who has come off of, branched off of a teaching and created an interpretation that is from the initial teaching. There is a depth to that that is damnable. And that is the way that most people use the term heresy today. They use the term heresy in the sense of damnable heresy. They rarely use it in the basic form of just somebody that's divisive. Let me give you another illustration in scripture. In the book of Titus chapter 3 verse 10, it says to refrain from being around a person who is a heretic. That's how the King James translates it. Most modern translations use the term a divisive person after a second admonition. So after somebody's been warned once or twice to stop being divisive, you should avoid them. The term there is from the same word heresy or a heretic, a person who is divisive. See, what Paul is doing there to Titus is he's saying, look, if somebody chooses to follow sectarianism, you've warned them to come back to the truth. You've warned them to come back to a more basic understanding of faith. And they choose to ignore you. After the second time of approaching it, just avoid the sectarian. That's not the way Peter is using it. Peter's using it the way that most of us would use it. Most of us would use it in a damnable sense. So here's these teachers. They have, let's use chapter three, Paul's writings. They are not trained in the apostolic interpretation of Paul's writing. Because he said there are things in it that are hard to understand. So the gullible are now really in a place of compromise when someone who uses great terms and well-spoken terminology to give what they believe the meaning is, and they use it for their advantage to win the masses. Now, in this circumstance and in this condition, many follow these teachings. And what it creates is sectarian belief systems. We find this very early on in the church. Forms of Judaism made it into Christianity. Gnosticism made it into 
Christianity, different sects of even Gnosticism, whether you're talking about Serinthianism or you're talking about Docetism, you start finding sectarian groups immediately in the days of the apostles themselves. And Peter is warning of this kind of sectarianism from the beginning. Now, let me go deeper into this. And I want you to hold, hold on because this might hit home. Here's the question then when it relates to this subject. What do you do when there's a failure of proper agreement within proper interpretation of Scripture? Now, I know what you're thinking. What are you getting at? Here's what I'm saying. I heard a discussion the other day from an apologist who has asked the question, there are so many different interpretations of the Bible. How do we know which one is true? Have we lost the meaning of these verses over the 2,000 years of their existence? Now, I'm going to tell you what the apologist said, and before I do that, I'm going to tell you this. It's a great question that our society is continually asked because there are different interpretations. Here's what the apologist answered. He said this, you have to do the proper exegesis rather than asegesis. Now, I agree. We should do proper interpretation. We should follow the proper hermeneutic to understand scripture. Here's the problem with that. And yes, we should not insert our external prejudice and biases into the text, asegesis or eisegesis. I agree with that too. But that doesn't answer the person's question because no heretic has ever brought themselves to a debate. Let's just take the Council of Nicaea and Arianism. Arius believed he was interpreting scripture properly. Then both groups, the Orthodox and the Arians, held to the, the view of Jesus, his existence, his origin, his essence. Both used scripture to defend their position and used hermeneutics to do it. Here comes the question. How do you know which interpretation is right? And then I remember Peter said in chapter one of second Peter, no prophecy is given a secret interpretation. Okay, Peter, thank you for telling us that. So how do we know which one is the right one? Well, he tells us that it was not given by proper or by hidden or fake ideas or interpretations, but rather it was given by exposure, light, clarity. For who? Well, the apostles, the eyewitnesses. This is where the rubber meets the road, right here, folks. The apostles left their not only written scriptures, 
but their meanings to their successors. Hear me out. Peter, trained individuals. John Mark, he mentions first Peter. He had spent multitudes of hours with individuals who were left behind in Rome and in Antioch and in Jerusalem, training God's people in the next generation. Paul did the same thing, lists many of them by name. He lists Timothy. He lists Titus. He lists Clement in the book of Philippians. He, he, he traveled with Silas, who is referred to often as Silvanus. Luke. These are individuals who traveled with the apostles. John trained individuals like Polycarp, like Ignatius, like Papias. You see, these individuals had spent time with the apostles. And we find the formation and the tradition of succession. What do you think it meant when Paul said the words, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Well, what, what was Paul telling Timothy when he said that? He's talking about not just the written text, but its interpretation, its clarity, and what he had originally meant. Now, what was going to happen? What was going to happen is, is interpreters were going to come into the church who wanted to make a name for themselves. And they were going to use the teaching of the apostles, just like ancient Israel had false prophets, use the teachings of the prophets to wrongly interpret, wrongly convey for the purpose of popularity or control or gain or some sort of manipulation. These teachers were going to sectarian themselves away from the original church's teachings, writings, and interpretations for some other gain or benefit. Now, some people do this just out of complete ignorance. Some people do this out of intentional willpower. That's the group Peter's talking about here, not the ignorant. Here, he's talking about people who are secretly coming in to gain something in the churches by manipulation tactics. And the way of truth is blasphemed as a result. This, this is the point. Christ has purchased a church. He has bought it. He has given himself over to this institution, his people, Some creep in to the covenant community bought by Christ, claiming to be servants of Christ. But their message shows that they are not actually a part of Christ's covenant community. 
they have sectarian themselves out. As a result, denying the Lord that bought that institution of the church and their position. They claim to be in the position of purchased people. They are covenant community teachers. As a result of their twisting and manipulating, they have actually sectarian themselves to damnation. Now, this is easy to find in false teachings. There's a lot of teachings out there that we would say brought in damnable heresies to the church. Some would say Mormonism or J, JWs, the Jehovah's Witnesses, or people would say there are different sects connected to Christianity that are teaching a false Jesus and a false God. I'm with you. But what leads to such change? What leads to, even in the early church, Gnosticism? That was alive in the days of the apostles, even when John was alive. Okay. Hear the words of John so you understand the culture context. They were not of us. Yes, they came out from among us, but they were not of us. For if they were of us, they would have continued with us. But they left so that they would make their works known or manifest that they were never truly from us. What's John saying? They were sectarians. They departed from the true teaching. Who's the us? Who is John talking about? Well, if you go back to the beginning of that epistle, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which we have touched, the logos, the light, the trueness of God manifested through Christ. We were eyewitnesses. So you have the group of the eyewitnesses given the divine mystery and revelation of truth from the word of God himself. They deposited the words, teachings, and interpretations to their successors. But even in their day, people left changing, manipulating, repackaging, exchanging the truths and its meanings to be its own interpretal group. That is where Gnostics came in. That's where John pushed back and said, when he's fighting clearly a teaching of Serinthianism of some sort, we've touched him. I don't care what you've been told. Yes, there are teachers that are coming out, but they were not of us. Yeah, they were with us. They didn't stay. They sectarianed themselves away. They left the true teaching. They divided into another group and started their own interpretation. They started their own choice 
party. That's what heretic means. Choice party, a sect. Now, those are damnable. Leaving people the interpretation that Jesus was not even truly flesh. That he was just a mere phantom. And that escape is not resurrection, but enlightenment from within. See, the message was the same. Folks, I have spent many, many hours in my doctoral work studying the ancient Gnostic texts. You do realize they use a lot of the same New Testament teachings. And the Gospel of Thomas, for example, quotes all four, many, many times, all four of the, the Gospels that we have in the canon. The canonical Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Out of 114 sayings, it uses the same terminology as the four Gospels we have with nuanced interpretations. A lot of the parables are the same. A lot of the same remarks from Jesus are the same. A lot of the same questions of Jesus challenging his audience and disciples are the same, but its interpretation is what's different. Sectarianism is not just a deviation from the words but it's meanings and teachings and interpretations as delivered by the original authors of those words. So then you got to ask yourself the question, how do we know out of all of the questions and all of the interpretations that are put on the Bible that we have the proper exegetical hermeneutical meaning? The apologist, going back to the question, the apologist has stated this. He said, you have to use the proper hermeneutic. That's great. But what do you do when two parties have the same text, exercise the same hermeneutic, and come away with a different interpretation? It's circular to keep going back. Well, then you just got to use the right hermeneutic. Well, who says your hermeneutic's right? I use the Greek. I use the Hebrew. Well, so did I. I use it. I even interpreted the verb tenses. I even interpreted, uh, interpreted with the proper noun functions. I did the same thing. No, you couldn't have because I came without, a, I came with a different interpretation and I did those same things. How do you solve the problem to know the true teaching and deposit of the apostles has been guarded against sectarian interpretations? What did the church do in Acts 15 on the subject of circumcision? when there was division about what to do. Well, they gathered all of the apostles and the elders, their successors, to a council to interpret together what God had revealed in the Old Testament 
and what Jesus had interpreted through his eyewitnesses for the new one, the new covenant, the new Testament. And this is it. They came to a consensus with all the eyewitnesses and all of the elders as to Jesus's intention and what he had always wanted to see done through his apostles on the subject of circumcision. So you went back to the original institution, the Council of Jerusalem, the original eyewitnesses, the original successors, and came to an ecumenical conclusion of interpretation. This is what I'm saying. We have to go back to the apostles' churches and find within the archives their leaders and their writings as to what it showed to mean and practice what the scriptures were teaching. Folks, you've heard me on this program many a times talk about this. There are points in scripture where hermeneutical approaches do not give clarity. Peter even said there are things in Paul's letter to this church that are hard to understand. Hermeneutics will not bring full clarity. You need something else. And what happened is sectarians took the difficult passages and brought an interpretation that left the apostolic understanding. This is why I emphasize in this program so much that you go back to the earliest writings of those who knew the apostles and those who are trained under those who knew the apostles the successors and their successors. It must be done. I am not against modern scholars, modern interpreters of Scripture. But I have never understood why when we question the integrity of a passage and its meaning, that we instantly run to somebody in the modern age to help us. I'm not against commentaries. I use them. I'm not against modern interpreters and commentaries. I use them. But why start there? Why not go back to the earliest stages and see if there is anything in history where one of the apostles' churches and one of their leaders and bishops or priests have left in history for us a meaningful interpretation of the text. And then, and then corroborate that with others and see if you have a consensus in the early church as to what something meant. And then work toward modern age. I've never understood the approach was starting with modern interpreters, modern scholars. I believe that we need to start with the earliest 
exegetical approaches and interpretations and corroborate that with the others of their companions and see if we can get within the consensus of the apostles' churches, their leaders saying the same thing about those same passages of Scripture. They were not. The early church was not shy, not limited in how often they interpreted the Scripture, folks. It was like the only language they spoke and gave quite a bit of commentary to it. I believe most heretical sectarian belief systems today have come from modern age interpreters who are mindless of the early church's interpretations of the texts. Again, most heretics have a book, chapter, and verse behind their heresy. But lest we believe, lest we believe, that they woke up one day, opened the scripture, and just went full-blown damnable heresy on us to create a new religion, almost, or a new Christianity. Lest we believe that that's how this took place, we need to actually think through the digression to the point of damnable heresy. No damnable heretic started out in damnable heresy. They started out in... in delved into other sectarian thoughts that led to another break, to another sectarian thought, to another sectarian thought, to another sectarian thought, then to a damnable sectarian thought. We need to know what the apostles' churches believe. What did they hold to? Do we have a universal consensus. That's what these councils were for. So the Council of Nicaea was doing when it came to the deity of Christ. Is he of similar or same substance as God? Is he created or is he a non-created being? We need to know these answers because they shape our theology and doctrine. The question was, what is a heretic? Who are the heretics? And what makes a person a heretic? Well, in the simplest sense, a heretic is a sectarian that takes the text of Scripture and sometimes ignorantly and wrongly twist it and interpret it as they did Paul's writings that Peter warned about at the end of the book. Sometimes it's ignorant. And they lead people to follow that choice interpretation in their ignorance. Stage one. That's a stage one heretic. A sectarian who leaves the apostles' church where there is the apostles' text and interpretations and goes into a separate category, group, or ideology and moves that, that sectarianism to a stage of normality. That is a heretic, part one. 
A heretic part two is a person that goes beyond that parameter and goes not into ignorance, but as Peter says here, damnable heresy. This is why Paul, when talking about the stage one heretic, he says to Titus, reject and refrain from any communion and togetherness with a person who's been warned once and twice. Let him go. Avoid him. Avoid the sectarians who continually reject the stage of truth where it has been guarded, protected, and preserved, not just in written form, but in its interpretal form, because you have within your grasp the church of the apostles and their successors and their writings and their interpretations and their commentaries and their homilies and their, and, and their exegetical breakdowns of what the apostles meant from the beginning. And someone who's been warned and corrected and continues in error, avoid them. That's phase one, stage one. Phase two, stage two is someone who has intentionally left the state of ignorance to the state of detrimental intentionality to corrupt, ruin, and lead people astray willfully. That sectarianism is a damnable heresy. That's what Peter's talking about. Second Peter chapter number one. We need to learn to avoid these sectarian thoughts. Let, let it feel, let the gravity and the weight be felt on that. When you open the Bible and say, thus says the Lord, ladies and gentlemen, you need to be very, very careful when we, we, you, I, us need to be very careful how we present the interpretational meaning. We are so loose with scripture that we commit sectarianism without realizing it sometimes. Prime example. Most modern interpreters or preachers today will come to a text seeking immediate application rather than interpretation. It's easy to just read a surface-level statement that sounds good for application and get you a few amens in the crowd. <clears throat> Folks, it's easy to do that. And you're damaging. You're damaging God's people when you say, thus says the Lord, and then you apply scripture that might even be a proper way of living. It might not even be leading them into error. It might actually lead them to make the right choices in their life, but you've wrongly used the scriptures and you've twisted something that might bring out good spiritual results in the end, but it doesn't make it right. You've created sectarianism. 
Oh, that we, the people of God and the leaders of his church, be intentional to rightly divide the word of truth and to rightly apply its logic, its essence, its formation, and its spiritual divinity, its divine nature. Because it was breathed out by God through the Holy Spirit, moving men to write its very words. Oh, that we, the people of God, would be quick to pause our preconceived ideas and get into the text. Yes, use proper hermeneutics, but make sure we are in line with the ancient proper interpretations that have been passed on. And anything outside of that was a sectarian thought either in degree one or degree two. Degree one is a minor case of ignorance and wrong interpretation that, yes, can do major damage, but it was not intentional, but still needs repenting. Or worse, you end up leading people into damnable error and they live their lives wrongly in light of Scripture. And then there's also the people within that phase who do it on purpose to gain an audience, to gain a people, and to gain a following. And I do not need to be the guy that lists all the names on the internet and on TV and in the bookstores who have made a name for themselves with cool, awesome interpretations. Lord. Have mercy. Christ, have mercy. We have blown it, folks. We need to do the due diligence when it comes to handling the Word of God, lest we become heretical in the simplest form or in the damnable form. And by that, folks, feel the gravity of saying, Thus says the Lord. Better make sure. It's truly that. Well, thanks again for joining this podcast. This is your first time watching this on YouTube. Please make sure you like and subscribe and follow as new episodes come out. If you're listening to this on the podcast itself through Spotify, Apple, or one of our other avenues that is being distributed, we ask that you like and subscribe as well. Follow us for new episodes. Uh, soon, as I stated at the beginning, my co-host Tyler West and I will be doing a project together on the Council of Ephesus and what it means for us to say Mary is the mother of God, the Theotokos. What does that mean? Is that proper to say, or is that a little bit too far and sacrilegious? That episode is coming soon. Make sure you tune in for that. Grace and peace to you. God bless.